hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Now, I would say back by popular demand, but given that my guest today is probably the most popular podcaster out there in the Doctor Who universe, don't give me that look. I'm just going to welcome back Mr. Toby Hado. How are you doing today? Hello, I think you're 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 lying out of kindness, but I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like the Michael Sheard of podcast. You know, in the nineties, there wasn't a Doctor Who convention that didn't have Michael Sheard attending. I feel, I feel a bit like people see another podcast. Oh God, not him again. But, uh, <laughs> well, I listen to them all. You've got three on the go, haven't you? With yeah, yeah. Um, Happy times of places, which is a, a jolly, a positively inclined. Uh, episode commentary because much like forums uh you know you don't, when when forums were a new thing and uh, you'd go oh like-minded people talking about the thing that they enjoy and you dived in and went oh no it's lots of angry people saying yeah. how terrible things are um and, and that ha- that I, I you know I, I i found that with a few few pod- podcasts where because it's 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 i think it's quite easy to to be to be critical and, and and actually it's quite fun to be critical as well and there's some great humor to be had at doctor's expense but i just remembered how much i'd enjoyed doing running through corridors with uh, with rob shearman which was his idea to do something where we just accentuated the positive so i thought well i'll try and i'll try and do that um just try and fuel it through through love give somebody something positive because it was during the pandemic as well um so you know tr- tr- to, to, to try and just keep it upbeat um, and then there's too much information, which is, you know, wall-to-wall facts. Extraordinary. Uh, is an extraordinary <laughs> piece of work. <laughs> uh, yeah. You must put into those, the time yeah. you must put into scripting those. Yeah, the whole point of them, all of these projects, was that it was supposed to be something I could sort of rattle off whilst getting on with my life. Uh, and now they've sailed there, oh, taken they? over. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I, it sounds like I was being negative about other Doctor Who podcasts. There, I didn't. I didn't mean that. I think I just. It was more about the because the subreddit, and I listen to loads now because I listen to. You know, I feel one should support the cause, and there's so many great and creative things out there. I think I just. It was just that I wanted to really accentuate the positive about about the stories. Um, uh, and uh, I've heard you. Uh, you you catch yourself out sometimes because you'll be talking about and you'll be going down the negative path, and then you're oh hang on, that's <laughs> yeah. being positive. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it, and I and this is nothing to do with Doctor Who fans. Actually, this is to do with my my sort of day job as a as a comedian. I, I've sensed there's a currency in sort of cynicism these days, and, and 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 comedy at its best, you know, deconstructs the powerful and takes down um ass, you know assumed truths or whatever, and that and that can be great for comedy. But I think that if that's not careful, that can just metamorphose into people moaning about everything or rather or being a bit smug about something that's you know cool what's the sun eh? apart from a blooming orange ball what's that you know you suddenly go you couldn't make a sun uh, and i think <laughs> when so so there's a bit because of my love for doctor who is is so reverent from when i was a kid and all these people were gods to me the idea that you just go oh that's a load of old rubbish now when fans do it it's slightly different because we do it from a point of uh, affection i think it's assumed that we like it in the first place but we uh, but but i think i was very defensive because i was growing up at a time when people would go on telly who clearly didn't watch doctor who saying how rubbish doctor who was and as we know it was a miracle that doctor who got made and it's created cultural iconography that has lasted decades and will outlast any uh sort of dismissive 
comedian. So when I, when I see that now, do you think are we over that 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 feeling? Uh, it, uh, it's probably fused into my DNA, which means I overreact. So so I I perhaps never escape it. Um, I don't know. I think I think you know with um, future developments of the TV show, you know, uh, it's going to start embedding itself in consciousness again and be talking about it in a much more positive way. So, I hope so. I hope so. Um, I mean, it's going to be quite a good way of if you haven't already got a got a radar to to, to weed out people you really don't need to have a conversation with. Is any, anybody goes, oh, it's woke now because there happens to be a black man in it? Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually wrote a whole podcast about the reaction to shooting at one, and in the end, I didn't use it because wow. um, I'm just trying to. I instead, I just want what I want with anything I do as I get older, and because the third podcast I do is a thing called um, what's it called? Uh, Indefinable Magic, and it tries to sort of muse on an aspect of Doctor. Is with anything I want to do, and you find yourself sometimes getting carried away, trying to settle scores because that's what we do on Twitter. Somebody says something wrong because it's written down; it seems official. So our instinct is to go, "I've got to, I've got to write that wrong." And that's the worst thing to do. You, I always think, "Wait, step away, and come back in two hours later, and either respond or better still, don't." You're uh, never going to convince that person. You're never going to convince that person. You're just going to go person. around in circles. So, so I thought the only thing one can actually add or do in these circumstances is to make something that makes people happy, um, that, uh, to, to if you encounter somebody, to make their day better, not worse, after you've encountered them. And I'm still going to screw that up. I'm still going to encounter people who think I'm a prick uh, or don't like what I've said or disagree with my opinion. But if that's what I try to do, I can at least sleep at night. Do you know, I got a tweet two days ago uh, from a, a guy saying that from January the 1st, he'd listened to every episode I put out. So that's 376 episodes. Wow. Uh, and that uh, he'd been going through a terrible time. And that was his one point in the day beautiful and i was like you know i started i had no clue that you could touch somebody like that no that's that's a lovely thing about the podcasting thing and i i slightly had an insight into that because before i did the podcast my comedy club excess malarkey went online because we're live every tuesday night in manchester we suddenly couldn't be because nobody could leave the house and we immediately went online and what i hadn't thought of in all the whole how do we get comedians to do their set online how do we do this what's the practicality will people watch because they've got netflix at home why would they watch a live comedy show what i hadn't anticipated was that actually people all like being part of something at the same time yeah. which i hadn't anticipated but also they felt a connection and part of a community and i i hadn't realized that at all and that that was quite humbling and, and again we had no intention to do that what we did was to let's put on a good show and try and be funny and I don't think you can aim to do that, but it's a it's a it's a very nice byproduct that reminds you that actually there's more that unites us in this fractured world if we want there to be. And that actually also how lucky we are because a lot of people out there don't have that kind of infrastructure or that family unit or that friendship group. And if if you end up being their extended family or friendship group or contact, that's a really nice thing. The thing about having a podcast where you have a different guest on each time, the thing I didn't anticipate was that those people would form a community, which they have. And they've started calling themselves the Ham Fam. There's a, there's a, <laughs> and when someone new comes in, there's like 30, 50 people welcoming them in and then they're going off and meeting each other. 
Oh, oh great. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing, the Doctor Who community, I think. It is. It is. And I think it's easy to always, you know, obsess about the, the more malevolent bits because obviously they're the most noticeable. But actually they're noticeable also because they're, uh, they're, they're the exception often. Or, the, as we know, the loudest voices, that you know, are often the, 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 the ones that you need to ignore and all of, all of that sort of stuff. But that actually most of it is... Is, is really good. Um, well, interestingly, um, before we head into the story, one of the tweets I had today, because I put this out to Twitter, was that somebody wrote, my two favourite podcasters, who both do commentaries, are coming together to talk about my favourite episode of Doctor Who. Has Christmas oh. come early? Oh, We've God. Got nothing to live up to here at all. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the story that we're talking about today which we haven't mentioned yet no is like the peak of kind of doctor who popularity season four of the new series maybe season five as well series sorry i think this is probably where doctor who was his biggest yeah we're gonna look um watch silence in the library and forest of the dead and i yeah. just have some opening opinions from you before we go in uh, I love it, but I'm still don't know if I've quite got an angle. I remember it feeling like a slight anomaly at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because the Moffat stories by that point came with such high pressure, yeah. such high expectations and such pressure that I remember being really excited and by the end of it going, oh, I that wasn't what I expected, and I don't quite know that was. Especially as he does that switch halfway through, which became a bit of a trademark with some of his two-parters, that, you know, where part two doesn't really pick up quite where part one left off and has a real change in tone. And and it took me sort of revisiting it not long later, two or three weeks later, because that was at the time when an episode came out and I watched it almost immediately Sorry. again, and then a week later, and, uh, um, and just going... And actually, you know, weeping at the uh, uh, at the denouement in in my in my um, stepson's bedroom. This was I remember exactly where I was, and we were watching it together. And just going, oh my god, this is so good. Um, I, and there are so many things that we can talk about that are brilliant about it. But it's still it's still one that I I feel is slightly set apart, whether it's tonally or whether it's because of the story that it's being told or whether it's just because it's a Moffat within a Russell T Davis season it I I'm still not quite sure how to categorize it ironically seeing as it's the one that's set in a library I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know which shelf I'd put it on if I was having to genre it do you know what I mean um but I and I haven't seen it for a while um and I'm looking I'm looking forward to watching it I, um, I, th this is a weird one because I feel the first episode is probably the closest. It's not as slow as a classic who, but it is a lot about atmosphere, mm. character and setting up the, the menace like a classic, uh, episode one would do. And then episode two, it's just one idea after another. It's a furious pace. It's absolutely a new series story and it's doing yeah. things at once um i think it's extraordinary and yeah i think we should watch it okie dokie oh. right so yeah do you want to count us in okay i'm gonna press play in three two one
Off we go. Uh, and isn't Silence in the Library a great title? Yes. Because it's Silence in the Library and it's Silence in the Library. Um, oh, and uh, I remember when the cast was announced for this as well, because Doc, as you say, D Doctor Who was riding as high as mm. one could possibly have imagined, more higher than one could possibly have imagined at this time. I think the casting of Catherine Tate gave it gave people outside of you know in the real world a, an extra boost of attentiveness it it seemed like everything was going right with doctor who at this time you know how sort of the the rating average for series four is still like that i i feel like it was getting deep very good ratings anyway Catherine had just edged it up a little higher. yeah which considering how it had started and been more successful than we could have imagined. The fact that the trajectory was up, I, you know, it's like you kept expecting the bubble to burst or something to go wrong yeah, or the novelty yeah. to wear off. You go, oh, this is getting, this is getting better. Um, this is a brilliant premise. But the fact that Colin Salmon was in it, uh, you know, who was in the Bond movies and prestige he, he's casting. really yeah. prestige casting, um, uh, as well as Alex Kingston, Steve Pemberton, you know, you suddenly go, and I love, I love, I love the pacing of, you know, bursting through doors, exciting music, shutting the doors, keeping the thing out. It's it's bread and butter Doctor Who. But that wonderful thing and then later on, how they explain from uh, the Doctor and Donna's point of view how they got there and what yes. the girl actually looked like, which is that floating ball, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And because and, at the end of episode one, you've still got no idea what the hell is going on with the, the seemingly very nice dad, the very lovely understanding Dr. Moon, who doesn't seem like a bad guy and actually brilliantly isn't a bad guy. You think, is this, is this girl being held prisoner? Is there something malevolent going on? And actually it's a really touching it's human true. story. That. He holds it back until about two thirds in. Yeah. Yeah. And trusts you to go with it. And, mm. and, and every time you think, well, well, I don't know what you think, but I remember when, when it goes wrong and she turns it off and loses it and you, you go, oh, so she is. She's not imagining this. This is an interactive part of. It's not. A, yeah, it's not a dream. She she is directly influenced by or reacting to what's going. There is some involvement, but without you, it's not guessable. It's not guessable. And uh, I don't know what a Doctor Moon is, but but that reveal makes absolute sense. Uh, but that's that's all later. This whole this setting where they've shot this, the CGI they've added. Yeah, I mean, bit of lens flare there as well. That's gorgeous. I never uh, would have expected Doctor Who to command visuals like this. No, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, uh, and and Ka I think Catherine Tate. I was I was no big fan of Catherine Tate. I wasn't. I didn't dislike her either. But um, I watched a few of her shows and thought, yeah, she's great. She's obviously a very you know talented performer of a particular kind of comedy. So uh, you know, I wasn't like, oh, it's amazing. It's Catherine. For the status of who she was, I was excited that she was in Doctor Who. She um, pulled the rug out under everybody, though, didn't she? And oh. I think Rusty Davis was like, we're going to give her the most astonishing material she, and see she, what she can deliver. Yeah, I thought she was fun in The Runaway Bride and a bit of a revelation, but you thought, okay, she's done. And then when she came back, and you, I remember where I was when I found out she was going to be the new companion. And I thought, this is amazing because you've had... She, because she's a slightly older woman with ginger hair um who is, is is not is not somebody that you know um is the I, traditional I sort of dolly but she's a <laughs> she's a she you know she's a, a normal looking person and i have to say in today's television where producers and casting directors rightly um 
uh, are proud of their record of in, improving diversity on screen. Diversity of body shape, I think they're miles behind. Mm -hmm. And I and I think the expectations of what people are supposed to look like on television is is positively backward in, in many regards. So the fact that you have somebody perfectly ordinary looking who is going to be a, 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 an inspiration for young girls particularly, because the female companion figure, you know, is traditionally that, I, I remember thinking that's really positive. That's a that's a really fantastic thing. And then the fact that she turned out to be not only funny, but the bits in the Pompeii episode oh, where she's boy. begging him, yeah. you go, this this she could do anything. This woman, I think she's great. She honestly, I, uh, in Planet of the Ood, when she's crying at that Ood in the cell, in turn yeah. left when she gives that incredible <gasps> speech when she's yeah. in the circle. Oh, she's so good. She it's really like, is good. Like, um, J and T always used to say about comedians. Of course, they're great actors. You know, like. Well, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't argue. Well, I've always argued, actually, and this 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 does slightly sound like I'm pitching. But I think if you're a good Shakespearean actor or a good comedian, you can do Doctor Who because both of those have. Well, comedians have to have the lightness of touch. Shakespearean actors have to make. Uh, very difficult concepts and sometimes nonsensical sounding words um, have a grandiosity about them because science fiction has to be quite large, but to filter it through and make it understandable uh, and make it followable by a general audience. And I think the mixture of sh Shakespeare and stand-up is is the ideal combination for I've Doctor Who performer. Actors uh, from Star Trek behind the scenes give interviews and say, you know, I'm so glad I had all that training with Shakespeare because now I'm speaking all this Star Trek technobabble, you know, it's exactly what you were just saying there. Yeah. What they couldn't manufacture, though, was the chemistry between David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Yeah. And I think that is probably the best the new series has given us. And I think in this story in particular, some of the scenes towards the end of the story when they're back together, for me, it's as good as Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen at their height. Yeah, they yeah. are. They're great. And they're, they're mates. <laughs> uh, but, but also she's... You know, obviously, she 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 learns from the benevolent, intelligent Time Lord, but she is. It's the Leela trick uh, of making somebody not necessarily have the knowledge and the experience, but not patronise them as a result. Still make them thoughtful and inventive. And you know, again, Donna is the sort of character that most writers would use to be the butt of a joke. She's a slightly self-absorbed, unambitious office working it, 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 often of the type of person particularly female person very patronized by writers set up as a joke character but but where russell t davis i think is so clever and we think we're talking off mic before about jackie tyler mm. is that a, another kind of character who would be patronized by a lot of writers for the sake of leaving easy enough you know that russell actually loves these people he's not patronizing them he's not that there are jokes at their expense and they do jokes at other people's expense but he is such a celebrator of life and of the potential of people and of anybody that I, and i think that is really refreshing we all know you know middle middle-aged middle-class men who find depths in themselves in tv dramas you see that all of the time but the idea that often neglected people um or who if they do it's always slightly patronizingly done um oh it's you know somebody working class has learned to read aren't they marvelous whereas with russell it's it's different from that it's a celebration of 
those people on their own terms. Donna, I would probably hate in real life. She's fucked. She's selfish. No, she's I've thoughtless. always said that as well. I love her in Doctor Who. I love everything she brings to Doctor Who. If I knew this person that was, you know, overly opinionated, loud, in your face. Yeah. Yeah, it would be unbearable. I think. <laughs> and and in many ways, she's she's gross she's a grotesquely nasty she's a grotesque narcissist. But well, he... depth as well. There's massive depth to her character. Well, that's that's good. I mean she's a brilliant performer too, but that's good writing. That's the Russell T. Davis approach. I always use an example with Russell. I know this is written by Moffat. We're going to look at a lot of his the amazing stuff that he does in this. I use as an example when I talked to Russell about Midnight and I said, oh, yeah, that's a great story where Doctor Who lands on the planet of the Daily Mail people. And Russell could really easily have taken up that joke, that gag that I did and go, yeah, yeah, that was all about mob rule and aren't these people awful that they judge people? And he said, well, no, actually, because to those people, what... The doctor was coming across as exactly what they thought he was, as an arrogant metropolitan elite. And Russell refused to go. Those people in Midnight are all awful people that I was satirizing for their mob rule mentality. He had he he had affection for them all. He understood where they all come came from. Uh, he he hadn't set them up to be bad, you know. Yeah, he doesn't look uh, down on his characters. No, every character, no. even if he doesn't like that sort of person, he writes he, um, that sort of person. Forward. He understands where they're coming from, and it makes it much more interesting drama. But what much he gets more to do interesting here, drama. whether he would like Donna Noble or not, is he gets a whole season to play with, oh. and the material they give her is oh. his world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and, and it never ceases to be fun. They're obviously having. I I love the pace of this. That uh, uh, who. I, I love the sort of bounding down, running down corridors, bounding through doors. They completely understand that that's that sort of breathtaking. You're either running towards adventure or running away from danger. <laughs> but but it, and I, I was watching something last night that was on Brickbox that was an old drama. Uh, and, and I think it had been influenced by NYPD Blue or some of those. And the camera wouldn't stop bloody moving. It was all this sort of slightly handheld. And I, I, wanted, I wanted to tell the director to sod off about 15 minutes in because i was oh, like i, I hate this a long-running argument with i've got a star trek a podcast where we cover the breadth of star trek as commentaries and whenever we watch the new star trek with the drones zooming around the sets and there's a long-standing joke that i prefer the more stately camera work of 90s or even original series trek. i agree with you it's dizzying it's distracting whereas this rather brilliantly it has that it has that pace and it has that breathiness. It has that effort, but but the, the, the but not with that giddying sort of camera yeah. uh, where it tries too hard. And still, uh, and, and I love the fact that she's so. You know, they look at the idea of what these these facial drone things are, and she's going, "Oh, that's actually," and that's what you would be like. You'd be so that's somebody's face. Moffat is brilliant at science fiction ideas like that. Do you know that face on a pole thing? They could have done that in Classic Who, couldn't they? Quite yeah. Simple. Just have someone's head inside that. And I love yeah. it when the new series does that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you, what do you think about? Okay, so the villain in this is yeah is shadows essentially. Yeah. So it's Stephen Moffat uh, taking a very simple idea and making something absolutely chilling out of it, just like statues. Just like forgetting things, you know. Yeah, it, it, it works. It's free, doesn't it? It, it? It's it's a trademark of his that I think uh, buys into something that I think completely understands 
Doctor Who and and how it works. The 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 the, the foot you see when you're hiding under the bed, the crack in the wall, the statue, a gas mask. It's all stuff that's not only sort of ordinary but spooky, but also ordinary from childhood. Something a childhood nightmare writ large. And I think he's so good at doing that. Shadows, and he talks about the little bits of dust in the in the in the light. Yeah. You know that that is him going. Here's a childhood thing. How do I make it a Doctor Who monster? What he absolutely gets is how kids can actually play with this in their real lives. Absolutely. So you can play statues very easily. Yeah, there, there's shadows around you all the bloody time. You absolutely, know? absolutely gorgeous. Really smart. Oh, He's so good simple. at that. That's what I love. And it, this isn't that's an idea so simple. Shadows. I'm surprised they didn't do it in classic Doctor Who. You know, it, it's yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, uh, she's she was married to Elon Musk twice. Who's that, Miss Evangelista? So, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got all of the um, the guest characters appearing now, quite late into the story as well. Yes, yes. And the first of can can I give you an insight as to why you should never listen to anything I say about Doctor Who, and I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about with regards to anything. Okay. Um, Okay. This this was a time when everybody was watching Doc Two. So my my comedy club, I'd go on a Tuesday. I'd usually refer to the episode on stage, but people would come up. It was in the air. And people would come up and talk to me. And I remember Rachel, one of our regular punters, who I who I still see most Tuesdays, bless her, um, sent me a message after this was over, going, "So uh, what are the other River Song stories?" And I went, "No, no, no, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 there aren't any." And she said, "Oh, well, can we look forward to some more?" And I went. No, no. The whole point of that story is that her story is told within this story. We will never see her again. Oh, all of this, all of this happens off stage. From now on, we've seen the Doctor meet her. We've seen the Doctor lose her. The rest of it is noises off. It's a tragedy that we will never see. The beauty is in the unspoken. We do not need to see the rest of it. It is all there. You will never see her again. I am. What a fucking moron! What came of that theory, then, Toby? What came of that? Oh, uh, I genuinely thought it was it was you had everything you needed there. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and and the the whole tragedy was what we could imagine these beautiful things that they did uh, off because the story was com was complete. You know, one of the reasons I find this the ultimate Stephen Moffat scripted story is I can't think of another story that has gained so much weight by what came after. <laughs> what it. came after? Yeah. Yeah. Right um, till the husbands of river song where literally that is leading into this in like a perfect loop yes yeah and even some of the dvd extras where he you know he fills in the gaps there's a couple isn't there on one of the later ones where because i'm i have to say i love this um and i, I love the way that miss evangelista is a bit thick and they're all a bit mean to her and, that's uh, a really uh, interesting character it, re it really Especially is when she's inside the sort of vr world and so yeah very smart yeah about how she's treated yeah absolutely there's there's a lot there that i find very moving about how because i'm i, I think the way that i think we often let ourselves down the way that we we treat other people and i i mean i weep at seeing kids crying in the park i i so i i i, I feel the sting of of the, the, how she feels so out of her depth and i think it's i think it's really sweet sweetly and sensitively done actually with 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 some great with with great economy um and, and i like all of these characters harry peacock ray ray bloody purchase 
Uh, you know what? What really shocked me was Steve Pemberton, and I don't think he's given a bad performance. Don't get me wrong. I have seen him do such extraordinary work elsewhere. I just thought this was a very plain role for him. It's I. I hate to say it, I think he's slightly miscast, and I know from something he did it RP originally. You know, talked posh, oh. uh, and then they went, "Oh no, actually, just do it in your normal." accent and i think i i i don't know i it seems an odd fit i love the bit where he goes at the end because she's family and all of that but i think up until that point it's i i think there'd be better casting i've seen uh, him play grotesque hilarious oh, insane he, characters to see he's him an, acting so naturalistically is very strange he's an amazing actor he's brilliant at character he's brilliant at pathos and comedy I just think this is a slightly odd fit. Um, yeah. And sometimes Doc 2 casts against type and it really works. So I'm all for it. There's nothing better than seeing William Gaunt from, as I was a kid, No Place Like Home, playing a, playing a, a leather-clad assassin with a machine gun. And it really works. And he's brilliant. Um, but Reed. Reed. But I'm glad you said that because I don't, I don't wish to... Uh, I don't I, I enjoy criticizing a performance i actually don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the performance it just seems to me to be a slight a slightly odd fit i'd say anyone listening to this go and watch one season of inside number nine yeah oh god an amazing actor he is uh, and an amazing amazing writer too i mean inside number nine is extraordinary i've got a um, i've got a question for you about romance in doctor who yes and Okay, the sort of whole time traveler's wife thing. Yeah. Because we talked about this a bit when we did Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. And, yeah. And the Doctor and Rose's relationship. Now, obviously, this is a big part of the series. Yeah. Forward. Do you object? Do you know what? I, 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 I was once asked the question, what would you do if you had a time machine? And of course, other than obviously go back and record the 97 missing episodes of Doctor Who, um, is that actually I would, and I am a huge fan of Stephen Moffat's work and of, of his Doctor Who, I, but I'm afraid I would travel back in time and uh, to a point bef and kill the person who gave him a time traveller's wife for Christmas, because it's not the romance that I have a problem with. And I actually think the way he deals with fractured memory and all of that is quite clever. Um, uh, it's not the romance that I have a problem with, although I, I think so many other programmes are about romance. I think Doctor Who doesn't need to have it. I, I think, uh, and I think I always need it to be slightly thwarted. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in seeing the central character having a, re a relationship because every other programme is about people and their relationships. And as a, as a kid and as a youngster, I felt that those sort of things were maybe out of my reach and, and that programmes where those were seen as the most important things alienated me. And I like the ones where you could sacrifice that instead for breathtaking adventure and circumstances where I might feel slightly more capable or slightly less uh, less feared and all of that sort of thing. So I, I, my, my objection to romance in Doctor Who is, 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 is based on, I think, the fact that you get that from other other programs but then when it's done it, it turns out that the, the kiss in the tv movie didn't kill my love for doctor who the doctor <laughs> the doctor and rose was so beautifully done that i that that you, you 
but you had sort of had your cake and, and, and ate it really there. Yeah, but, yeah, but I think but, the but, TV but, movie was more of a blueprint for the new series than we thought. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But uh, but I thought it was brilliantly done. But the problem I have Go on. is not the romance. It's the time travel. I'm sorry to say, I don't think Doctor Who is about time travel. Time travel gets a bit of trouble in the following seasons. Then time travel gets you to the adventure, and it gets you out of the adventure. As a concept, it is deeply problematic in terms of storytelling. So you have to then forget about it because otherwise, when the first person dies, the Doctor is very heartless if they don't travel back in time and stop them dying. If you only do it to people who are on serious contract, that then draws attention to the artifice. Uh, that. You know, why doesn't he just travel back in time and stop Gallifrey being destroyed, my friends would say, because you can't cross the timeline. That'll do. Lovely answer. Stop asking silly questions. This isn't Bill and Ted where he hides something in a cupboard and they go back and do it four or five times. That's because Bill and Ted is a comedy and it's playing fast and loose with the idea of sci-fi. They'd never do that in Doctor Who. Well, unless it's the comic relief sketch, but that's Stephen Moffat writing for comic relief and showing that that's, that's what you could do if you're being silly. But thank God that's a sketch because they'd never do that in actual Doctor Who. And then he does it in actual Doctor Who. And I think it's, I think it's problematic as a storyteller because you choose when to do it. And, and also you have to be so rigorous. It all has to tie in like a jigsaw. Mm. Uh, and I think when he's doing these early stories, when he's writing one or two a year, that my God, they're plotted, they're, they're meticulous. Yeah, I, th I think uh, they're uh, best, if I'm honest, I do think they're best. Uh, I, well, I think it's too much. And, and I don't watch a, a drama to at the end go, oh, the writer's clever. I watch a drama to go, I'm satisfied, I'm moved, I'm excited, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I think there's a bit of a flourish, of, especially if you're creating the rules. It's like if I play a card game with you that you've never played before, uh, and, and, and I suddenly go in round 13 when you trump me with an ace, go, oh, no, aces don't work in round 13. And you go, well, hang on, I didn't know that. It's like, well, it's no, it's because I'm creating the rules. Well, then there's no, there's no satisfaction as a viewer then. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah. You know, the, because the goalposts change, the rules change. I remember getting to the Big Bang in the series five and the way out of that was him just hopping about all over the place. Yeah. Cheating. And it's I was cheating. like, well, this, is, this is just, this isn't great, you know. And I know a lot of people buy into that. Then you get to six and it's this whole River Song storyline sort of writ large in that season. It's like a massive chapter of the Doctor and River Song series six. It's so convoluted. It's so confusing. I just wasn't enjoying it. I was like, yeah. I don't know what's going on here. And I know, you know, if you want to sit down and plot it all out and all of that, I don't want to do that with television. I just want to watch no. it and enjoy it. No, and I, you know, and I'm happy. I watch Doctor Who over and over and over again. So I don't mind it being complicated, but not to the extent that I just go, oh, this is, you know, this is too much like hard work. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy the Moffat era because I did, mm, actually. And he does clever stuff with time travel as well. There's a lot where I kind of nodded in appreciation as well. I, 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 I just wished they hadn't gone that way with it. River Song, I think, works at her best in her first story and her last story. I loved her in The Husband's River Song. And I thought that was, and I thought her and Capaldi had a fabulous chemistry in that. And that mm. worked a tree. But I think this was enough. The, the the concept here of him first meeting her is when she last meets him. That's a really clever idea. That was probably enough for River, of River Song the, for me. 
There was one of the DVD extras, a couple of the DVD extras, which made me rethink it slightly because it, 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 it was, maybe it was, were they going out for their last night or whatever and it's in the TARDIS? And, and they have this whole exchange about how, how can you trust memories because memories are fractured and actually what we remember isn't how we, how it really happened and all of that. And I, and I found that quite a convincing argument that actually you and I could remember an event we were both at 10 years ago and remember it completely differently and who's right and who isn't. Now in real life, that's all about perception, but in the Doctor Who universe, that could be because time has been changed and is in flux. So I, I do buy that. I think he, he articulated that very well in some of those exchanges, but, but it's a lot to wade through as a, as a, uh, in, in storytelling terms. And I, and I think it's, I think it's a misuse of, the TARDIS because it suddenly becomes a get out if you want it to and then when you don't want it to that question that's always hanging with time travel well why don't they just that Doctor Who used to very easily and pithily bat off is not so easily uh, dispensed with a, a word for Tallulah Riley who uh, who does who's sort of wanting to go off as and get the attention of everybody as Miss Evangelista of uh, 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 yeah. I, I think I think it's so sympathetically done. I think she's great. This is uh, I haven't mentioned uh, Euros Lynn's outstanding oh, brilliant. of this, but this is quite a long sequence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's a terrific director. Look at that slightly askew camera. Yeah, the lighting is the lighting is gorgeous, and look how far away she is too. Heads into the, this incredibly creepily lit room now. Oh, beautiful! The beams um, of light coming through the ceiling. And of course, it's all about light and darkness and shadow. And uh, uh, oh, it's it by day. <laughs> it looks it looks like a very important place, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's really spooky and really atmospheric. And do you know what's uh, fabulous in a minute is when she dies and she's ghosting inside. Yeah. The, I can't remember what it's called now. The the it's yeah yeah. The, the thingy with the light turning off yeah. um, is how she talks to Donna and how Donna just refuses to patronise her like everybody else. It's yeah. so touching. It's the, I think, I mean, I think, I can't remember, I think somebody may have already done this for me for Happy Times and Places, but if they haven't, they could cheat now because I think this scene where she's ghosting yeah. is extraordinary. It is brilliant. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sorry if I was, if I was, disparaging about the time travel element of uh, Stephen Moffat stuff. I, I actually adore his writing. I adore his wit. Uh, uh, but also, let's not forget, he really understands how to do science fiction concepts and to meld them into something oh, very human. He's, so he's so genius, I think. This, this, this idea of the ghosting is a fabulous idea that pays off later as well. But for here, to get a moment of humanity at the point of somebody's death and to make the death of this sort of rather useless factotum uh, who everybody was a bit patronizing to and to give donna that moment of connection and then to top it all with her final thought is a very bathos ridden ice cream ice cream ice cream i mean it works on every level every single word of this scene i think is absolute genius i adore I, it i really love it when they use donna like this as well where she's like oh i, I don't want to like and and she's do you remember when she picks up the personal ball in planet of the Ood? And she's going like, you know, hello, I'm Donna. <laughs> that it, you know? like, how can you not love this woman? <laughs> yeah, she's great. Oh. Uh, it's so beautiful. 
And I do, um, I do love the idea of the entire, you know, the, the skeleton being clean. You know, it's yes, so it's like, like put it in a spacesuit, you know, and have it walk yeah. around. Well, that's great, isn't it? Skeleton in a spacesuit is a typically sort of Moffat-y kind of image, but but it, it reminds you, you know, when I was a kid, the piranhas were a thing, you know, you'd 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 you know because they could they'd strip somebody alive in seconds, you know, so so piranhas were always a sort of very scary concept. So there's a bit of there's a bit of that about them. Is he's calling piranhas in the dark? Or something? Yeah, something Lovely like that. And that's all you need, isn't it? It's like you're, yeah. you're going to be. Sick. That's enough. Yeah, you step into a shadow, and, and of course he's doing that wonderful thing. That's even Moffat does see now. We're going in the other direction now. Full of praise is um, seeding ideas early that are vital to the climax, and the yeah. ghosting is vital because it's in the screwdriver, and that's what saves River at the end. Yeah, it just seems like it's there to add a little bit of texture and humanity, and and it's a great a, a bit like the nanobots in in uh, Empty Child, which you think, oh well, that's a thing to to mend Rose's hands. That's and then it turns out to be the key to the whole thing. Um there's something very Agatha Christie about Stephen Moffat's writing sometimes. Oh, he's he's, mati he's meticulous. Meticulous. At his best, it's it's forensically uh brilliant. You can imagine the post-it notes on you know fucked it about. Um I I admire that so much because because to write something and have the different compartments in your head where this pays off there and that goes backwards there. There's that takes a particular mind and it's and it's you know hard we're um let's see 29 minutes into this episode now and have uh, failed to mention david tennant in any great detail <laughs> once and i know uh, i know you adore david tennant and the 10th doctor yes in series four he's just a cut above even his own brilliance he's so he's so good it's easy and and it's certainly ice cream oh god it's so beautiful um he he's so easy to take for granted we i think I, I think i'm always guilty of because i like it when I, I always look for the new things in a story that new actor or that new director or that new way of storytelling or that new monster that i i i often take the regulars for granted and david tennant probably more so than any partially because he gets enough love from the general public you know I, there's there's no need to stick yeah. up for him in in a way there's perhaps a need to stick up for colin baker or or, or or people that deserve a bit of ballast but there's a reason david tennant is loved by the general public uh he's he's great he's he's a phenomenal actor he's such a good actor but... he's coming back as well you know oh, <laughs> but he do you know what? he drives he has got such as and acting on telly is not easy look i'm not I, Yes, it's not brain surgery. Yes, it's not as important as some other things. But as a technical exercise, acting on television is not as easy as it looks. Uh, and to have somebody who's doing all of this stuff in completely a different order, um, uh, different ends of the week, different ends of the day, but who's got a sense of... He paces his episodes of Doctor Who. The, the driving pace of the 10th Doctor's era is David Tennant's energy. Yeah. uh and that's what you know that's uh, just that like that that he does with the, the with the torch there and all that sort of thing and, and he affords you a hero shot because he knows exactly how to do it and and the way he pelts around is because doctor can never be boring but it, it easily can be if you're not careful especially as if, you, if you're spouting lots of exposition or difficult sci-fi explanation but he's got such a drive and such an energy you know i think i can point at the episode that exemplifies what you're saying 
absolutely perfectly and that's utopia where at the beginning he's very fun and they're exploring and it's all great then there's in the middle there's a lot of exposition and he's having some real character and then when the master's revealed sorry spoiler it's been 10 years get over it um he's furious he's his yeah. dialogue is he's pelting about he's screaming his head off because that climax is just explosive yeah yeah it's it's a really underrated talent that 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 you know and, and the fact because he's on screen for so long and you know they're early mornings when you you know he you need a you need somebody who's fit and vital and sparky and you know he's got that intelligence whirring away as well uh, i wasn't sure what, i didn't get what i was expecting with david tennant i didn't expect him to be quite so sort of cheeky chappy mockney and that was a bit of a su surprise because our image i think that we had of the doctor at that time was he's an eccentric englishman no, sort of type uh, and, and obviously eccleston was a casting against that type so was i think i was like the first and i hate to say this but cool doctor wasn't yeah it? you know yeah get well geek chic yeah One for the kids you know yeah and they he's, all love him he's great and he's such a nice man i have to say well, he's I such have a... yet to hear one interview where anyone has said anything other than he's just delighted he, no he's a really nice bloke he's a good he's a decent bloke he really is um oh here you know that she's getting the first key here that something is going to happen at the end of this sit or her future is not with the doctor because river yeah that's who she is yeah that's yes yes Ooh. yes there's, there's always that sort of because they're again it's very because they're so fun to be with these characters uh, and uh, you know you go oh well this this is gonna last forever you have to have that sort of slight portent of doom i mean it does they do slightly cheat with it you know that there's always somebody banging on about this is the story of when i die and then you go but it's not actually you're not actually gonna die though are you it's going to be a metaphor for death but but it just helps to puncture what would otherwise be you know, too much fun Rossi Davis seasons are brilliant at doing that, aren't they? Yeah. Portentous, something yeah. bad is just around the corner. Yeah. You see him throw the chicken into Yeah. It's great. It's so simple to show the kids yeah. this is what's happening to a yeah. person when they step into the wrong shadow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and because I think we're about to lose him, aren't we? I, I have to say, um, kudos to the naming of proper dave another dave i think that's just a glorious little grace note because of course nobody in any drama tends to have the same name because that's confusing and it's one of the it's one of the 101s you get in writing don't call you know uh somebody john and somebody johnny or whatever yeah. but uh, but Marvin goes but you're always meeting people who've got you know that you're always got a mark s and a mark t and you have to d delineate them somehow so having a proper dave and another dave i think is a is a lovely piece of charmingly funny writing i have to say harry peacock as well um i, I don't know if you know toast of london but he's one of the great comedy characters ray bloody purchase who is stephen <laughs> stephen toasts the actor's arch nemesis and he's a furious actor type um uh, this guy here harry peacock uh, and he's got wonderful legs there's a scene he does in in one of the toast episodes where he's in a toga he's got calves to die oh, for to i tell you out then, but he, he is also the brother i need to do a podcast on brothers in doctor or, or relatives in doctor because he is the brother of nord the viking no nord the vandal, nord the vandal. from the, the greatest show in the galaxy because the peacock sign isn't it and harry peacock here is trevor peacock's son as well ah 
another extraordinary actor. Yeah, who never did a who, bizarrely. Trevor. You must have made for it. You seen Jim Trott in The Vicar of Death? Yeah, yeah. Trevor was a marvellous actor. You know, for a long time, I thought Binro the Heretic was Trevor B. He could have easily done the part, definitely. Are they ice crystals? No, no, no. One, something we mentioned in a previous commentary is that during this period of Doctor Who, they can bring together an astonishing ensemble of actors oh absolutely. i think they do it in impossible um, planet and satan pit yeah they do it again in the waters of mars but i think this is a this is a big hitting cast as well it's a lovely cast yeah um and uh, ot fag benley who's uh who's the other dave is has got a great american career now he's a he's a you know he's in loads of american shows and he's a terrific actor he i'd seen him on stage uh, here in Manchester at the Royal Exchange in Six Degrees of Separation, where he was a very promising newcomer, you know, and he's he's got a lovely style about him uh, and doesn't awful, get an awful lot to do in this, really. Um, um, sorry, Donna uh, materialising there, she materialises in the title and she lets out an almighty script. I remember when I first watched this, my blood yeah. ran cold. Yeah. And it leans into that Elizabeth Layden thing of saying, of course the companions should scream if they're scared. And it's not yeah. that it happens a lot in the new series. Yeah. Yeah. Very but it's, yes, it's horrible. It's curling. Um And also a word for Murray Gold. Oh. I love Murray Gold's mm. music. I know some people say, oh, it's too much. I love it. I absolutely love it. In Forest of the Dead, there is an eight-minute piece of music. And God damn it, I can't remember what it's called. I'll look it up between the episodes. Um, and I have heard that. But it's, the, it's the piece that starts playing when the Doctor and River, just before she kills herself, right up until towards the end. I think it's one of the best pieces of music in Doctor Who. It's fantastically good. But it's quite uh, it's quite understated in this episode. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's all sort of moody notes and slightly skewed notes that go that 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 suddenly go in an odd direction. This this is a, and of course you forget as well. Moffat's great at catchphrases. Are you my mummy? Yeah. Uh, hey, who turned out the lights? And, yeah. you, and again, he's really good at that sort of economical pant wetting. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of those great. questions from Twitter was Toby, who did turn out the lights? <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> but is but you know that you can you can see him fiendishly coming up with that idea, you know, just as and the inexorability and the inexorable nature of a walking skeleton. Well, you can't stop it because it's already dead. Um, you can't communicate with it because it's just saying the one thing, uh, and it's that great thing of being a parody of humanity, which is always the scariest. Is there something really a dead man walking? Yeah, it's dead man walking. Beautiful. Dead man walking, scary things in the shadows. I mean, genius. And here's the music really kicks in here. As a, and I love leading to a cliffhanger in a Doctor Who of this period because they're so rare as well. It really feels like the stakes are up. And this is like a multi cliffhanger. There's about a hundred things going on. Shadows bleeding I out. I love that. And I also really love the sort of jerky movements as well. Yeah. Sort of cadaverous move it's oh it's chilly i wonder if it is harry peacock if they said to him you know you know you've got to do all the bit where you're wondering about <laughs> as well or if he was like listen love i'll do it when he's talking but otherwise you can get get somebody from wales in <laughs> we still don't know what's happened to donna at this point do we no well she's because she's yeah no oh. she we've seen her scream and take away we don't know what's what's happening with the 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 the, the little girl either 
the visual um, detail of that square, that askew square yeah. being cut out of the wall as well. Beautiful. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a like sucker. something wonderful happening every 30 seconds. Yeah. And I'm a sucker for running up and down corridors. I just want, it's just my meat and drink. Um, you had a book that was called. <laughs> yes, indeed. I didn't. That, that was we were given a load of titles, um, uh, and that was the one that we 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 went for. I, I, I quite rudely rejected a lot of them because because um, it's an American publisher, so they say. How about things like totally Sonic exclamation mark? <laughs> and I was like, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember when I was picking up uh, a hamster with a blunt pen knife, and I thought, well, no one's going to go with this. Not only have I done that, but I get people to say it all the time. It's glorious. Great. Oh, it's a great line. Um, <sighs> but, you know, people have a go at Ark of Infinity, but I, I think there's nothing like watching Peter Davison breathily running up and down the corridor. Oh. That, that to me is anyone can face off against a Cyberman and talk about well prepared meals. Nobody can, nobody but Davison can quite make. The same short studio space looked like the entire corridors of Gallifrey. Oh, I don't want to put a slight on Peter Davidson's incredible acting career, but nobody can wander a corridor quite like him. I, do, I think you're quite right. And indeed, Tennant, when he does a couple of bits of oh, the Army Ghost, doesn't he? He's oh, totally not mainlining way. the Davidson. <laughs> yes. this, is, this is brilliant. Look at that. Oh my God, it's Donna. Do you know what um, I love about it? This is Troll Doll from Terror of the Autons. It's simultaneously very stupid and utterly chilling. Yeah. And and what stops anything in Doctor Who being totally stupid is the playing of it and the absolute commitment. Look at Tennant. And and her Alex Kingston's reaction is important as well. And Alex Kingston was big news at this time. This was somebody who was in America. Was it uh, doing PR? Yeah. 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 Um, I love this, and I love this moti musical motif as well. But that, yeah, again, it's a parody of what we know. The fact that it looks and sounds like Donna, but it's unblinking and it's repetitive and it's dehumanised. And then you've got this cracking cliffhanger. Well, I mean, everything's going on. It's three cliffhangers, really, isn't it? You've yeah. got problem with a little girl, you've got them being chased by the skeleton, you've got Donna's face on the pole. It's yeah, it's absolutely terrific. I love it. I wish and we I can were... actually see because in the second episode, you're right. He completely subverts expectations. Yeah, and goes off into what appears to be a completely different story for a little while. Of course, yes. Ends, ultimately, uh, credits are going too fast. Yeah, I that's the only. It's my only complaint. And it's not. And it's not the program's fault. It's the BBC edict for how long credits should last. But I think that's um, offensively. I think those credits are moving at an offensive speed. <laughs> oh did you watch the next time trailers when you were watching these on Broadway? yes I, I have a friend who doesn't um but 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 me i feel if it's if that's what's being given out i feel it's acceptable to digest it um i love the way she does that line i hate you sometimes um the thing is yeah i think that episode is fantastic but i, think I love it i love it even better and it's a, a second part that completely lives up to the promise and more. Yes. Um, now mine might start automatically. No, it's not. Oh, mine will too. Uh, let me let me pause this because I'm going to hit you with a few questions now. Uh, okay. You will indulge me. Yeah. Um, Okie dokie. So oh, we've we've answered this one already. Some uh, Fraser Gregory asked, "Where do you rate Steve Pemberton? Uh, Steve Pemberton's performance in this in comparison to his League of Gentlemen colleagues' turn in Doctor Who?" 
So that's Reese Shearsmith, I guess he's talking about, and Mark Gatiss. Yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, it's uh, comparing actors is like comparing, uh, you know, um, uh, salads to paintings. Sometimes very different different things re- required. Of different. I I think my I love Mark Gatiss's turn in uh, Twice Upon a Time. I th- I think because he's so good at channeling that sort of slightly old fashioned thing he's he's heartwarmingly old-fashioned in 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 his loves and the things that he often turns his hand to um he quite surprised me in lazarus experiment you know because i thought that yeah a very one-dimensional role no he's great in that uh but if i was to choose a favorite performance of all of those uh the 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 league of gentlemen nurse in doc two i choose mark in twice upon a time just because i think he's so sweet and kind um but they're all i mean they're all amazing actors um uh, i mean reese shearsmith's great in his episode but um it's yeah i I just sort of take it for granted that he gives a good performance you know but it's um but but it's not it's not it's not one that i'd immediately the quality of acting in doctor who is so good these days that we're sort of spoiled for choice and i think there are other perhaps more um more noticeable turns and we've talked about where oddly it seems that I, I do feel that that Steve Pemberton is, is is just a slightly odd fit for that part um, although as I say I love mm. I love the scene where he does the revelation at yeah, the end right but 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 prior to that I I yeah I've I've always just slightly struggled with it okay you can give a perfectly cheeky answer to this question uh lip randall's asked which particular doctor who adventure novelization did the vash and narada read that made them run away <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, can we do a not to lid not to lid lit randall's whose twitter feed is oh, full of some fascinating wonderful stuff um, what are the novellans watching <laughs> yes <laughs> um i i um that's pip though isn't it the mavellans i thought pip made oh is that pip oh okay yeah pip does the lit roundels does the um the sort of looks at uh lighting designers and does things like that and he's Um, done some rescores as well yeah yeah on youtube there's some real inventiveness in doc 2 Mm -hmm. twitter that leaves me in awe um that we must I, i always feel the need to remind ourselves of that because we sometimes get carried away with the the bits we don't like and the meanness of that. Um, anyway, uh, uh, the book that the Bashan are it's the Robots of Death, a disappointingly slim volume <laughs> where <laughs> in one scene, I haven't read it for 40 years, there's a scene after Cass has been killed that the Doctor goes into the control deck or whatever it is or the, the lounge where they're all in and he describes who's in the room and it includes the tall, lean Cass and Cass is dead. So it's a continuity error within the book. <laughs> I remember that from when I was about nine or whatever. Um, but for, for one of Doctor Who's all-time classic stories, the, the Robots of Death is such a slim volume. Uh, you know, you could pick it up with your, with a little I pinky. sneezed and it blew away. Yeah. So I think the Vashna Narada have actually um, eaten all the descriptive passages and fleshed out character moments. Uh, and they've accidentally sicked Cass into a chapter he shouldn't have been in. 
This is this is from Joe Shaw, and I just I just want to know what your answer to this is going to be. Which doctor would make a good librarian, and which one would be chucked out for messing up the books and making a row? I think Sylvester McCoy would be the worst. I would imagine him <laughs> jamming anything. I, uh, one of the great things about <gasps> Sylvester McCoy is his chaos, uh, which I completely identify with because I I am very much. I will pick something up and shove it on, you know. I have, I have to have sort of biannual tidies of shelves because everything's just sort of piled and, and an absolute mess. And I can imagine the Seventh Doctor just shoving everything uh, where it, uh, you know, where it, where it lands. Who is perhaps the most... Oh. I suspect, I think Hartnell would probably be quite fastidious about keeping yeah. it all spick and span. Um, Troutman would be terrible, wouldn't he? Troutman would be <laughs> awful. Um, Trout tra tra would be eating toast off the books. Pertwee wouldn't have read any of them. He'd just have them all leather bound. Go, I hope you like my book collection, but he's not. They're just all for show. He's never read any of them. Um, you know, there was a wonderful passage in Paul Mars's Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which had him in the TARDIS library, and he's going through books. And in the margins, the doctor is writing like arguments against the facts that are in the books, and then other incarnations of the doctor are arguing. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> That's Isn't fabulous. That genius, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to hit you with one more then before we go into episode two. Lost on Gallifrey podcast asks Have either of you got a theory of when the doctor tells Riversong his name? And follows that up with, it's not in the wedding of River Song because he says, look into my eye. So is it when he's dying in Let's Kill Hitler or on one of the raunchy nights on Derillium? And is his name Basil? <laughs> um, oh, God, I, I, I'm afraid my mind does not no, all mine. do any of this stuff well so with the best will in the world i'd love to come up with some kind of answer and i know that Stephen moffat will have very much sort of planned it and and made it all work and tie together i don't think he had a great big plan from the beginning but he sort of maybe retroactively made it work and all that sort of thing and i admire anybody that can sort of work it all into a fastidious timer but i i don't care <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a shit. <laughs> I get the emotion. I love the emotion. I love the, the the lost opportunities and the and the pathos of the idea of meeting somebody on the day that they die and then that friendship coming afterwards. I think all of that is lovely. But but it's it's because of of what it facilitates in the performance of the two actors that appeals more to me than actually coming up with a. Uh, a, a, a stringent timeline that ties it all together that that i'm afraid is 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 too much to ask of me <laughs> no you know i've got to be honest there is an enormous section of fandom that are obsessed you know with filling in canon and a chronology and I, you know, and i think that's fine well, i think that's i'll tell you i th and i think that's fine and i think that the beauty of doc two is I saw somebody the other day uh, complaining because the next DWM special is all about the guest stars and going, oh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Well, to me, that's my meat and drink. I'm going to love digesting mm. that because, and I, but I can equally understand why some people don't care and don't know the names of any of the actors that play any of the supporting parts uh, because 
they're more drawn to the future history of Earth or the Doctor and River Song's timeline or any of those. And that's the beauty of it. We can some people, you know, get the exact measurements of the costumes. And that's how that anything that makes you go away from the program and exercise your brain or your creativity or most importantly, connect with somebody else because of a shared enjoyment of a particular aspect of the show is is joyous and wonderful and shows why Doctor Who is such a force for good and it ilba and, and, and i would never criticize or mock or even not understand somebody creating a perfectly a perfect timeline for the doctor and river song having gone away and worked it all out if that's the thing that has anchored into their brain in the same way that i might go and research an actor that's got two lines in the 1967 <laughs> story. Um, sure, at the end of the day, it's, <laughs> oh, sorry, at the end of the day, it's all pointless, but if it's, uh, but if it's what, if it's what makes our time on this earth pass, um, uh, more agreeably, better, more agreeably. And as I said, I think crucially what we touched on earlier, um, connects us with other people. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's great. So more power to everybody's elbow, but just don't expect me to understand any of it. <laughs>